The evidence, the probing and digesting of information about UFOs continues unceasingly. As a result, headquarters of the Hemispheric Defense Command in Colorado Springs issued an order. All military installations are to fire on sight at any flying objects not identifiable. But even as they did so, the military wondered whether their scientific know-how and their best weapons would be effective in any battle of the Earth versus... afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. It's WCBN FM Ann Arbor afternoon with Douglas Trevor in the studio. I'm so I'm so happy to to see you, Doug. Welcome to the program. Thank you, T. It's great to be here. <laughs> and thanks for coming in from the beautiful autumn afternoon. Yes, the building Welcome. I walk by, it turns out eight times a day that I didn't know was the student activities building. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, okay. So learning new things yes. about campus. Discovering as yeah, you the, take a stroll. Yes, parts of campus fifty yards from where I work that are unknown to me. <laughs> well, and and don't you love the spinning cube? Too? I do. Yeah. I do. It's very cool. That that I recognize as I walked over, but <laughs> it's really great to be here. Nice to be in the basement. Oh, right. It's, it's you know, <laughs> when don't you find yourself saying that, right? Yeah, right. Nice exactly. To be in the basement, especially in Michigan, the Michigan basements are yeah. quite fun. Yeah, we'll right? wait for Belfour to show Always up <laughs> to do some restoration work. Right. <laughs> Thank you also for choosing the songs for today's program. Yes, um, um, to torment my kids, William and Cece, who said they'd be listening. We're going to go all Radiohead uh, this, this evening. That's that's what they're going to get. So. <laughs> Hi, William and Cece. <laughs> <laughs> they're tired of the playlist um, that I subject them to in our car, so now they're going to have to listen to it on the radio. This is... <laughs> We have we have a, a one day a week where I say we just listen to Radiohead in the car. Otherwise, I, I let them choose their songs. When did the when did the passion for Radiohead begin? I got into them when I was in graduate school. Um, so this was in the '90s that I got really excited about Radiohead. And the song that we just listened to it's a funny song for me because it's off of their first album, and I had somehow missed it. And then uh, I was listening uh, to a, a kind of a, I was listening to a shuffle of their music, and this song came on, and I thought this is I knew it was Radiohead, of course, but I didn't know the song. I kind of discovered it, you know, 20 years after the their first album came out this past summer. So I've been listening to that a lot. It's, 
kind of fun to have. You know, they're such a great band to love because they have so much music and because their live music is um, is so different. You know, they, they refer to themselves as a Radiohead cover band when they perform because their versions of their songs are often sound so different live than they do on the on record so have you seen them live i have i saw them i've seen them a few times i saw them in detroit when they were here now i guess about what was it three three years ago maybe and oh. they were they were wonderful yeah at um yeah the palace they were great oh a lucky duck yeah you've never seen them well only once it was a while ago in seattle oh, so oh that would be cool ago. to see them in seattle yeah, i wanted to see them this summer they played glastonbury i guess ah. i haven't played there a long time and i this is where you, you were you were in England this summer. You should have oh, gone to Glastonbury. Yeah, so, yeah. That's on my bucket list. So. Oh, to go for the festival. Yeah, I would love to check out the festival. Yeah. I know my cousin Julie was there one year, and she talked about um, being in a tent and and <laughs> hearing them play and knowing she had to make tracks across a muddy field quick right quick right um but yeah the tent part I don't know if I'm as excited about or the or the muddiness when it rains and stuff but the music would be really cool. So. To continue with the Radiohead Hour with Douglas Trevor. <laughs> yes, all Radiohead. Let's not talk about <laughs> the living Radiohead fan. <laughs> exactly. It's a new he's show. Here. It's a he's new here show. in person. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, pull up the chairs, turn up the radio dial, um, knob. No, don't change the dial. Okay. <laughs> anyway, no, the occasion of this auspicious meeting is the Book of Wonders, um, your your new book of stories that's just out um, by 617 Books out mm-hmm. of um, uh, Boston, yeah, Massachusetts. Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's just released, just like this week. It came out on Tuesday, yeah. And, and you had the launch party at Literati yeah, here which in was, town. which was wonderful, and they were fantastic as always. And so it was had... a packed house, because I follow them on Instagram it, and it, saw the photo of you. It was. I guilted all the whole MFA program to come out. They couldn't, they, ha- they had to come. So we had a, we had a great crowd, and uh, all my colleagues were there, most of my students, undergrad and graduate alike, and we had a really good time. Does it feel like a rite of passage, something like that? I, I mean... I, th- I think that or a, a moment, a moment in your writing life or um, I think that now that I've written a few books, I, I don't take it for granted anymore. I think when my first book came out, I was trying to remember if I even had a launch event when my when my first book came out. But I think at the time I thought, well, I'll just be writing books. The thin yeah. tear in the fabric of space. Right. And 2005. That came out, yeah. In 2005, when I was living in Iowa City. And um, then it took me several years to finish my next book, a novel called Girls I Know. And after I completed that book, and the and the which was time consuming largely in terms of rewriting and revising. It was my first novel. Uh, at, at that point, I thought, you know, I'm not going to take the launch events for granted. So I, this Tuesday was was really fun. I had a party at my house afterwards and sort of you know kind of soak it in and enjoy the opportunity to thank people in public and just be around friends. It was really fun. And I guess um, it might be different because you have. Also, the poetics of melancholy in early modern England, but you might not have a book release party that's a, for yeah, that's an academic, scholarly one. Yeah, for the academic books, I think you uh, you wait to be uh, attacked, uh, <laughs> you know, and on the page in terms of other scholars who are going to disagree with your claims or something like that. So not so much, not not quite a, a festive occasion, but it was really really fun. Actually, that that book was published by by Cambridge University Press, and I was in I was in Britain when it came out. So I remember seeing it in um, I guess it was since it was the first book I wrote it came out a year before the thin tear and so it was the first time I saw one of my books uh, in a in a window display so it was that was really cool 
But oh, that um, must have been something. Yeah, that's really neat. That's a, that's always something that never gets old. So it's really it was really fun and a great cover. And I love the title. I was I was thinking, oh, I would like to read that one, Poetics of Melancholy. You know, I, it's funny you mentioned the title T because that's the one book I've written where I had a, a title that I couldn't use. The title for that for that book that I wanted to use was The Reinvention of Sadness because the book is about the emergence of a of melancholy of a kind of conceptual understanding of melancholy. In the early 1600s, and when the when Cambridge took the book, they they said, "Well, of course we're going to change the title because it's not really what the book is about. It's not." But I and so I mean I didn't really have a choice, you know, with the stuff that goes on the cover of a book. Often the writer doesn't get to, you know, choose the images or necessarily the title. So that's so crazy about the title bit, though. I know, isn't that nuts? I think the reinvention of sadness is a great title. But well, is that what you and your is that sort of your creative writing self and your scholarly oh, academic self maybe I butting so. heads slightly or yeah i think definitely yeah. do you have different selves is that presumptuous of me to say um i i think I, I well actually the book of wonders is kind of about that in a way because there's some academic figures in the book who yes, are many. largely <laughs> evolving out of um their academic lives excellence <laughs> university yeah right uh, that's uh in yeah, the upper the, midwest right <laughs> there's a there's a uh a fictitious uh, university, although people who know the um, the Midwest well might be able to to figure out what what institution I'm I'm referring to is a place where I used to teach. And uh, there are a couple of characters in the collection who, one of whom is at Excellence University, when he more or less is having while he's more or less having a nervous breakdown, and and then in a later story called Sonnet 126 about an expat who's left uh, Excellence University to um, move to London basically to become an adjunct. And both of those stories look at 50-something academics who are sort of leaving the the world of um, argumentation behind. So for me, like the 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 writing of that, of the period that I was, a, that still am a specialist in 16th and 17th century literature, especially poems like, uh, poets like John Donne and Shakespeare and Milton. I mean, those are the, I'm, I never get tired of, of reading them. But the prose for me is sometimes um, hard to produce because it involves citing other scholars and being a part of a community. So the, for me, the, one of the things that's so liberating about writing fiction is, is not having that footnote apparatus in play. Where, so when I read writers like um, David Foster Wallace and other people who play around with the footnote, which I, I love uh, what, what, he, what he did with the um, footnote in Infinite Jest, but that's never appealed to me. Like I've never really wanted to have a lot of footnotes in my You've got enough in work. your life. Right. Yeah. I've, I've, had, I've dealt enough with footnotes and, and um, the, the Chicago Manual of Style and things, <laughs> things like that. So, um, so anyway, and, um, this book, though, The Book of Wonders, is about um, really it's a collection of nine stories all of which are engaged with different characters' relationships with books or with the ways that we try to uh, enter into the minds of other people. Or myth. Or, or myth or writing or yeah, and, and this engagement with um, language, language and ideas is really what I was, and, and kind of in the broadest sense, what I was thinking about. So, so that's what was occupying you for these the time it took for this collection? Or, well, I was, and were there other stories that didn't make it into this group because that wasn't part of mm, the fascination? Or yeah, the... there were a couple stories that and that I ended up, that I had published with the, uh, in journals that I had intended to include in a, what I thought of as a collection of stories. But then when I really started to dig in to the stories that make up this book, I realized, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just put stories together. I wanted the stories to be linked. I wanted you to be able to sit down and read the book from beginning to end and feel a little bit like you've read a novel, even though the characters are shifting and changing. So I was really intent on exploring characters whose 
who want to reinvent themselves, to use that word again, and to change the direction of their lives uh, to uh, one degree or another, who who want to maybe try something different, like, you know, get into a car with a couple of strangers and go to a, you know, a, what ends up being a Marxist discussion group in Detroit in that, in that one of the stories that's in the middle of the collection or, or decide to... When uh, online dating doesn't work. Right, right. When online dating for this one character, Colin, is unsuccessful, he ends up um, more or less being abducted um, by um, two young women who want him to participate in a Marxist discussion group in Detroit. So I thought that was that was an opportunity to sort of think about the way in which different characters from very different backgrounds might re- end up reading the same book kind of books and what that looks like to read a book uh, if you're a student or a, or an academic or to read a book in the quote unquote real world and to encounter ideas uh, you know outside of a university setting, which is which is interesting to me. And so when were you aware that this is what was interesting to you for this? Because I'm wondering about that in the origin of these these different stories, because mm-hmm. it's so interesting to hear you say, like, what you're imagining the experience will be like for the reader, your intention for that, to have this linked in the stories, clearly talking with each other. Or yeah, so, and uh, I also wanted a certain level of silliness in, 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 oh, well, in the stories, yeah, too. Yeah. So there's... um. The first story I wrote that I'll, I'll read from a little bit is called The Librarian. The first story that I, that I thought of being a part of this collection is about a librarian who's really interested in the material contours of books, but is not really interested in books themselves. He's interested in their pages and <laughs> thin surfaces and stuff. And and, um, and when I wrote, in writing that story, it enabled me, it gave me the opportunity to think about the relationships that people have to material books as opposed to, you know, quote unquote ideas. And then I, I started, the, the next story I wrote was a um, story called The Program in Profound Thought, which is about, and that was a, that was a chance really for me to have fun with characters who were kind of silly. I mean, this, this, uh, it's a burned out academic named Herbert Baker and his, his uh, brother Pete, who is um, a recovering junkie, um, is kind of a raccoon whisperer in the story. He tries to talk to animals. He makes a plate of nachos for this raccoon that ends up biting him in the face. And, and the story kind of lurches from this kind of comedy, uh, kind of bromance between these two brothers, not even really a bromance. They don't get along too well to the, um, to the older brother, Herbert, realizing that he actually has quite a bit to learn from his younger brother, Pete, and that he needs to kind of change his life. He's in a rut. A lot of the characters in these stories start off in ruts. Or they kind of, I mean, I guess I hesitate to call them midlife crises because I think that some of the, you know, some of the characters are in their 20s and they're having crises. And the students I teach, you know, I think the 20s are a difficult time, right? I and mean, there are lots of, lots of changes and lots Especially of... Especially 27. You think 27. I think 27 is a tough age. I agree with you on that. Because 20, cause you can see 30 on the horizon, right? And, and uh, if you're like me and, you're, and you were still in school when you were 27, then you're thinking, maybe it's time for me to, <laughs> well, to move on. But that's when you were in Harvard, right? Uh, yeah, well, you I had... was there. I finished uh, my in grad school when I was 29. So I was in, yeah, um, six years in grad school. So, yeah. So then I headed off. I went to the University of Iowa after that and started teaching. And... Um, yeah, which is which is where the program in profound thought is set. So anyway, in the story, such a great title. Oh, it's you know it's it's it, it's, it's it was fun. I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned. I I I had the title really before I had the story. I mean, I the, the title is something I, the idea that there would be an academic who would create a fake, interdisciplinary program, <laughs> and funnel the money that he um the grants that that he might be given to run the program to help his brother in his recovery. I thought that would be a way to kind of. 
think about, I've never had a brother, so it was easy for me to romanticize that kind of relationship, or not romanticize, but to think about it in, in kind of playful ways, I guess is a better way to put it. So um, yeah, so that's uh, that was the second story I wrote. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, I, it would be interesting to to write a series of stories that looked at people's engagements with books and with other people through the lens of both the material book, but also just what it means to try to tell stories to each other or try to communicate to other people. So that's what that's how this that's how the stories came together. So the, a few other stories that I had um, that I've been working on, I kind of set aside. We'll come back and we'll talk more. Yes. Today on the program, Douglas Trevor is here. His book of stories, The Book of Wonders, on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got Stephanie behind the glass. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Douglas Trevor is here. His um, The book on the table with, uh, with us is The Book of Wonders, out with 617 Books. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, who'll be in town next week. Um, she's got the she's she's got the the pride of place with the the blurb on the cover, richly inventive and deftly executed stories. And you worked with Joyce Carol Oates in I at, did at as Princeton, an undergrad. Yeah, right? she was my mentor. Yeah, she's an amazing, amazing person. I'm so excited to have her on campus next Thursday. She's reading with the poet Monica, uh, Monica Yoon. They're reading together, and um, they're, uh, Joyce is a you know a legendary figure in American letter. She's written over a hundred books, I think, at this point, and she seems not to have slowed down at all. She looks the exact same as when I uh, worked with her in the '90s. It's incredible. Yeah, because that would have that been the very early 90s, like yeah, 90, right. 91, mm -hmm. 92 or so. Yeah. And so what was it like to, because you were there for not not necessarily create like like fiction at that point. Well, were you I, as I an went, undergrad? I or? went there innocently enough to study creative <laughs> writing. So I really thought. That, from Colorado, Yeah, right? from Denver. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, and uh, I got to work with Joyce right away. And um, she she was a, an, she's an incredible presence. Um, I hope those listening can check her out when she reads next Thursday. She's um, she's extraordinarily funny. She has a real deadpan. And when you're, uh, you know, at 
18-year-old uh, in college, so you're self-conscious and kind of nervous about being in college in the first place. And then you have this eminent professor and uh, who you th you sense is being funny, but you don't have the courage to know if you can laugh or not at her jokes. It was... Uh, it was just, it was uh, mesmerizing. Did you to, ever laugh? I think I ended up, I, I'm still nervous around. <laughs> I was, just gonna, I was yeah. imagining what's going to happen next week. I was I'm, like, at the cocktail party, you'll be like, well, I'm going to laugh a lot. And then she'll be like, what's up with Doug? Uh, what's happening? I don't, <laughs> I don't. very think, jolly. I don't think I did laugh that much. I think I was, I was so self-conscious in, in her class. I think we all were. This did, was in your, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say this is, um, uh, Joyce was writing um, several, uh, she wrote several novels and some, nonfiction as well about boxing. This was really her boxing phase. And I'm yes. dating myself, but this is kind of a Mike Tyson. This was the Mike Tyson era when he was kind of at the top of um, at the of the heavyweight division. And, 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 and Joyce would often use these boxing metaphors in uh, in class. For writing. Yeah. Um, and in a, in a way that was, it was really, it, it was really cool, but it was also, um, you know, these uh, kids at Princeton trying to figure out how to, you know, work into these metaphors. And um, she was, she, she was, um, she wanted to encourage uh, uh, a certain playfulness on the page and honesty, but she was also she would kind of gently rib us too, and, and that was uh, that was a in hindsight, you know, kind of amazing to think about what a great teacher she was and how on how in control of the classroom she was, almost in an orchestral way. She was uh, really. I learned a lot from her in terms of how to try to teach myself. So, And for your writing in that course, did she give you good feedback that actually Oh, great helped? feedback, yeah. Because so, yeah. you also published stories quite early, Doug? I did. Uh, the first story I published was, uh, I guess, when I was 22, so I was right out of college. And it actually was in a journal that Joyce had started called the Ontario Review. With and, her husband. Yeah, with yeah. Ray, yeah. And then she moved it down to Princeton. Yeah, right? that's right. Gosh, yeah, that's right, T. And um, she, uh, yeah, she she gave, uh, she was great at line editing, but she also, I remember once with the story I gave her, she said to me that she didn't think I was ready for the story and I should put it in a drawer for three years and go back to it. And this the idea that... that that was an available option. That something might improve if you weren't. That was probably mind blowing at that. It was really yeah. Point it, was, it was kind of it was liberating in a way because it made me think of being able to imagine having a career as a writer and also um, th there's something that can come with trying to force a story, especially I think when you're a young writer and you're not sure if the material you've got is the material you really want to write about, but it's all you've got, you know. So um, so that was uh, yeah that was great advice and I and I actually to this day I still think that. Um, the the work that as a as a writer or just an artist in general and even you know as a as a non artist this the work that our our subconscious can do on a problem if we just set it aside um, something that we're trying to you know figure out you know and approach it the next day um, with a fresh mind I think it's you know it's incredible how what you what you can see if you just step away from something that's why I always try to get my students I don't know if they my undergraduates especially to try to with their papers to try to start them early and then just to be able to have a day where they're just not thinking about them and then go back to them and then be able to read it um, uh, anew. I think it's so valuable, but it's hard too. It's kind of the nature of time here at Michigan sometimes, though, with the next thing, the next thing, the next yeah, thing. Yeah, you want to check things off. But and... with writing, it is it is such a process. Yeah. And I think what you're describing is if someone can experience that, then you're like, that's it. That's that's what it takes. So right. if <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, well, that's a good, maybe everyone can try that out there. Give yeah. it a go for even the procrastinators among us. The other thing that Joyce would say that um, to this day, I still think about is that um, in terms of thinking about character that we have in ourselves, that 
the the DNA, the requisite DNA to invent an infinite number of characters. And I, I think that's so true. I mean, I think that's very, that's an important message to give to any writer of any age, but especially young writers who might think that they're only supposed to write about their own experiences or the things that they themselves know directly and to imagine that, you know, actually we have the capacity imaginatively to inhabit a whole bunch of different perspectives. And we hope that, I mean, we kind of intuitively assume that to be the case because we want people to read our work and to, mm-hmm. and to explore, yeah, and to explore the connections that we make with, um, um, w- with the world around us, but also with our own versions of, uh, of the world that we, you know, that we inhabit. So. And so the DNA for this imaginative, imaginative invention, um, but also empathy then. Right. And I think empathy is such a crucial piece of um, the creative life and also just the moral universe. I think we need it uh, more than ever. And I think that, you know, to enter into an engagement with um, works of, of fiction, poetry, or, or any of the any of the um, uh, creative expression, uh, human creative expression, that it re- requires setting aside our perspective or trying to see the world from another point of view. And that's, that's one of the, of course, one of the great things about art, one of the crucial things about art. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the librarian? Cause you mentioned it a bit earlier in the program. Yeah. I mentioned that the librarian is the, is the first story that I, that I um, wrote that um, ended up uh, becoming the, the kind of the first building block for the, for the collection. The, and the idea was to think about um, a figure who, is set apart from others and who connects or starts to think about connecting himself to the world by virtue of noticing how he's different from other people. And the, the, um, of course the, the title of the story suggests what this character does, although he's not named until halfway through the story. <laughs> um, and his, and his, that's intentional. It is. Yeah. It, he, he names himself when he meets, um, the other central character in the story, I guess there are three really. The, there's the librarian, his mom, and this young girl who's who's um, spending her time in the New York Public Library, where, um, as you'll see, I don't know if I'll get there when I read, but um, where the librarian ends up working. So should I read a few pages yeah. from it? Yeah. And when, and when you said that, Doug, just a moment ago... Um when you were introducing the story, like the, was that the genesis of it? Like, how did this, because when you started writing this story, you felt like you had something like this idea, or did you set that challenge up um, where you felt like you wanted to see like someone who's aware of their otherness? And like, is that, because I guess when you were saying it, I wondered if you, that's what you were thinking about. And then it, it during writing, this is the story, the character that emerged out of that. I, I think what I um, what I began with was the idea that this is a an unusual person, and um, when we think about books, I mean, and largely the Book of Wonders is a collection, is a set of different experiments about how people connect through books, and the the connective the connective act in this book is an unusual one because it involves books, but it doesn't involve reading. It involves the tactile experience of books, and so that's. Uh, that was, a, I guess, a way for me to start to rethink what it means to talk about books. And I, I should have said at the outset that I mean, one of the one of the ideas that was um, that was percolating in my in my brain at the time was this idea of what if books are going to what if the material book is going to go away? What if we're going to end up with Kindles and screens and 
And so, um, so the material contours of the book really um, matter, and that's, that's what the story is really about. Can we hear it? Yeah, so I'm just going to read the um, beginning of it. We're not going to get too far into the library stuff, but um, this is kind of a, uh, this is the opening of the story of the librarian. He had to touch things. He couldn't control himself. Before he had been able to, at least for a while, but anymore now he couldn't. Why, he didn't know. Maybe because his dad was still gone? But his dad had been gone for a long time, so he didn't know. On the subway on the way to work, he would touch the hands of the people holding onto the same pole that he was. They would pull away. Sometimes when the train paused at a station, they would move to the other end of the car. That was okay. There were always plenty of hands to touch on the subway. When he entered a room, he would envelop the doorknob fully with his hand. He would touch the door frame. He would run his hands across the backs of chairs, along the walls. The curtains he would let ripple in his fingers. Curtains were his favorite thing to touch in rooms because they were so fine and thin and because no one had ever objected to the way he handled them. No one, in fact, ever seemed to care. In the park, he would pet every dog he could. He would cup their flues in his hand. If they were gentle and their walkers permitted it, he would place his cheeks against their panting sides. Most things he touched with his hands, but his preference was to touch with his cheeks. That was his favorite way to feel. He was a librarian at the reference desk in the New York Public Library. He had been beaten for touching people. Just the year before at McDonald's, he had touched the prickly beard of a black man standing in front of him in line. He touched it with the back of his hand. The man had five friends with him. They beat him in the restaurant, then outside on the street corner. No one tried to stop them. First, they punched him in the face and stomach. Then, when he fell onto the sidewalk, they kicked him. They did, they did this to him until the cops arrived, at which point they ran away. He was 28 years old. As a boy, they had owned a vacation home out on Long Island. The librarian, the librarian, who was then, of course, not yet a librarian, loved touching the sand. It was his favorite thing to touch. But it was frustrating, too, because on the beach, it wasn't easy to feel the sand touch your body all at once, and that was what the librarian wanted to feel. One day, the librarian had an idea. He would take off his swimming trunks and leap from the top of a gazebo they shared with their neighbors and land in the sand with his arms and legs spread wide so that each pore of his skin would feel the sand at the precise same moment. But the librarian miscalculated the distance from the roof to the beach and landed in between the two on a concrete path. He broke his right arm and leg and fractured his chin and two ribs. He spent the next several weeks in the hospital. The librarian, who was not yet a librarian, did not like having a fractured chin and ribs, but he loved the feeling of his arm and leg sealed in plaster. It made him feel very, very calm. Should I stop there? Thanks. Thanks, yeah, thanks. Doug. And I love that line. I'm so glad you got to the part, too, where you said the librarian who was not yet a librarian. Like, this, that, the yeah, it was, it's Yeah, thank you. It's fun to, um, to, to play around with the idea that we know this guy by his profession, but he doesn't always, he's not always in the profession. The story has to kind of catch up with his, with his self-understanding. And, and so then the story, the story ends up shifting to this, in, uh, into a consideration of what it means to, to be fixated on books. And as I, as I mentioned before, to, to then come to proximity with someone else who has a relationship with books and the kind of, and it, it leads in a kind of creepy direction in, 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 in many ways, but it was, um, it's a story about, um, the estrangement of this character. And it made me think then um, about writing about more 
characters not as not as strange as, as this one who um who are kind of set apart from others and are trying to figure out how to connect with other people as we all are right are, yeah let's take a short break and then yeah. we'll come back and we'll talk more about the story the librarian and and the book of wonders the the latest um, book of stories by douglas trevor i'm t hetzel you've got living writers and we'll be back Welcome back. If you're just joining us, um, that's great. Um, because today on the program, Douglas Trevor is here. The Book of Wonders, um, his stories, his latest uh, group of stories. So we won't call them a collection of stories because they're stories that are, are linked, but we, we won't call them a collection. That sounds good. Right? Book of Stories. Yeah. Okay. Um, and before we go any further... Um, I'll just read the short bio on the back. Although we've covered some ground, 30 minutes to be <laughs> exact, already chatting away and also finding out about parts of your life here and there. Yeah, you've done um, your homework, T. You, 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 know you know all about me. <laughs> oh, it ain't homework, Doug. Okay, so, but here we go. Just so that we have this part of the convention. Um, Douglas Trevor is the author of the short story collection, The Thin Tear in the Fabric of Space, winner of the 2005 Iowa Short Fiction Award and a finalist for the 2006 Hemingway Foundation Penn Award for First Fiction. And the novel Girls I Know, winner of the 2013 Balcones Fiction Prize. His short stories have appeared in dozens of publications, including most recently Plowshare Solos, The Iowa Review, and New Letters. A professor of English literature and creative writing, he is the current director of the Helen Zell Writers Program. A shout out to Helen Zell at the University of Michigan. He lives in Ann Arbor. Spends the summers in Colorado. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> oh, you don't? Oh, okay. I, I, get, you... <laughs> I get back there a little bit with the kids, but uh, most of the summers I'm still here, actually, in Ann Arbor. But we get to Colorado a little bit, though. Well, it's great. Ann Arbor is a great time. It's a great time to be here is it in is. the summer, it's right? Great. So. Yeah, I think it's a great. I think my kids love living here, too. Have, I think it'd be a fun, fun town to grow up as a kid. Yeah. So have you become thoroughly Michiganized I now? Don't... 
I don't know if I have. I feel like I don't know the state very well. I mean, I've gone up north some, but I... I and you just I, found the Student Activities Building. And I just found it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I spent a little bit much, too much time indoors, maybe. And well, uh, writing? Writing. And also, I mean, the thing about growing up in Colorado that is that um, because the, of the presence of the mountains, especially if you grew up in Denver, you always know directionally that the mountains are to the west, you know, where they are. So you kind of orient yourself that way. And since I don't have a mountain range, I've never really figured out <laughs> where I am. <laughs> I think spatially, I always get, I get, I get lost really easily in it Michigan. Am, yes. I always have. I find that, I find the, uh, also the Ann Arbor, of course, doesn't really have the grid system as I know it in terms of um, the street layout. Neither does Detroit for that matter. So a lot of my movement around southeastern Michigan involves me getting uh, lost, but that's kind of fun too. Yeah, some of the backcountry roads are are great. Yeah, it can be great. Um, do you still find yourself trying to make clouds into mountaintops? Yes, that does. That's still I still do that. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, before the break, um, we had heard um, the beginning part of the story, the librarian, and I just wanted to mention um, about the warmth that is present in the writing. So when you're creating characters, is that um, in this character especially, in, in these opening passages, it feels like even though there's a distancing mechanism of this, the librarian, even though we're in his childhood <laughs> and seeing his like formative years a bit, um, well, moving through time differently because right. he's on the subway. He's, um, but there's such a, a warmth there for your characters. Is that something that, hmm, that you are aware of or cultivate or is important or does it matter to you what? I th- uh, it matters to me how the characters talk and I think once I can figure out the way they form their sentences then I get a sense of what the what the narrative tone of the piece is going to be like so um, I remember uh, well in, in this story we've already talked about the way in which the central character's identity is a little bit distance and he is himself because he's not really comfortable in his own skin, he, he pushes people away a lot. And he's since he's so uh, the librarian is so tactilely oriented, he he assesses people based on what he thinks it would be like to to touch them. You know, if they have soft skin, if they have. I mean, the the Mrs. Higginbottom, the librarian he works with, he describes as having coarse skin. Um, like uh, you know, he, he he thinks of a wild animal when he thinks of her. But but other stories like um, in the program in Profound Thought, the character. Um, um, Herbert and his brother Pete. At one point, um, Pete refers to his brother as a dipwad, and I felt like that's such a silly, you know, such a funny word, but it's such a particular word that sort of moors his character. Like that's the way he talks. It's the kind of language that um, that he uses. And, and he's wearing a Led Zeppelin shirt. Yeah, he's got. Yeah, and he's at a uh, critical moment. Yeah, and he and he loves to. Uh, you know, he's really into bowling and um, and Herbert's. Um, as I mentioned before, he's in his fifties. He's He's gotten divorced. He 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 tries somewhat hopelessly to write a uh, personal ad that he wants to send into the New York Review of Books that his brother, much to his horror, reads over his shoulder that kind of exposes um, his own lack of comfort in his skin. <laughs> doesn't so, he? Doesn't Pete recommend hang gliding? Yeah, yeah. That, that he should like always, liven up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can always say you quit <laughs> yeah. after you go on the first date. Yeah. Well, I mean, his his his. Maybe I'll read. Maybe I'll read what, what his what his personal ad. What um, Herbert Baker's personal ad. Um, looks like because it's um, it's it's kind of where the story started for me. It answers your question. Which it was is, you know, that's where it started. Like yeah. Herbert was yeah, writing this personal. Like, well, what, what, what happened was it comes was, quite a ways into the story. Well, I I was reading the New York Review of Books and I and I didn't even know they had personal ads. And I don't know if they still do. I think so much of that has migrated to on the online portals. But but I I remember thinking, yeah, this is so this is so strange to find 
personal ads in the New York Review of Books and also to, to what? see That's the nature of That's where all the, the intellectuals go to find <laughs> well, other intellectuals. Yes, I mean, right, you're right. right? It seems like very... And, I, and so when I was trying to think about a, a character who would have kind of become exhausted by intellectual pretensions and also who is really in a rut, I, I try to think about, you know, what it would... What his, what, um, what his personal ad would look like. So I wrote it as a way of trying to figure out the character, and then I, it's it's in the story. So I'll, I'll read it. Um, this is this very short. This is a couple lines um, from the middle of the program in Profound Thought. So um, this is Herbert looking over his ad. Divorced white male, overly educated, burned out, 50-something academic, seeks a cheerful female nihilist of any age or ethnicity who is, who is unambiguously committed to heterosexuality. Ideally, she too is tired of the information age, jazz, Marxism, actually all isms, young people, exercise, and NPR. A passing interest in baseball that peters out in late May wouldn't be bad, along with some sense of what to watch on TV that doesn't immediately inspire a desire for a meteor to wipe out this planet. But in truth, interests themselves are entirely optional. Comfort in shared silence is probably a good idea, as well as patience with eccentric siblings. And so, you know, he's reading this, and then, as I said before, his, his brother comes up and whistles softly behind him and says, bro, that is one depressing piece of writing. <laughs> and it seems like that's, you know, that's kind of the ground zero for the story. How do you get Herbert out from under this hypothetical personal ad into a into a better place? And you had both those characters, their voices right there. Yeah, at right. The yeah, that's, and, and it was, it's, um, the, the joy of working on these stories was, exactly to bring characters who sound to me very different acoustically uh, together. So when in the librarian, um, when Daniel, the librarian, meets this young girl, Sasha, she's from Czechoslovakia. So she has a very halted um, way of speaking. And, and um, all the stories are like this. And the, and the opening story in Dimian is about an accountant named Cynthia who... Uh, who, who drinks in, Amstel Light, but not by real choice. Right. She prefers darker beer. She's trying to lose weight. She's, she hasn't been in a relationship for years and years. And in the opening of the story, she encounters this um, more or less Greek godlike looking man who seems to take an immediate interest in her for reasons she can't understand or trust. And he's, he has a kind of guttural sort of monotone um, when, when he speaks, a man of, of very few words. But and, many shrugs. Yeah, and he shrugs a lot, right? He shrugs a lot, and they end up having this relationship. And it, it's um, the story's really about uh, is about the degree to which we impede our own uh, ability to be happy by distrusting things that fall into our hands. That um, in in this case, Cynthia uh, doesn't really understand what it is that Damien, this guy, sees in in her, and as a result, she she imp she impedes the relationship. The relationship has other problems too, but. Um, I, I was so in, in a way she's kind of moving. Um, she, she's not able to move as far along in that story as Herbert moves in the program in Profound Thought. In a way, I hadn't thought about those um, two, and they're they're similar characters in, in, in many ways. And they, um, but anyway, Cynthia gets a chance in this story called Endymion. Endymion's um, uh, the uh, a reference to a, a shepherd um, boy in a, in a Greek myth, and um, and uh, this character that Cynthia meets is very much like this character from a Greek myth, which makes her doubt or feel incapable of really trusting him. He seems unreal to her. So, 
Why is that the story that leads off the nine? Yeah, that's a really good question because I um, I was saying uh, at, at, um, at my reading the other night that one of the really fun things about writing a short story collection, since we're listening to Radiohead, is the idea that, you know, it's almost like putting an album together for those of us who aren't musicians, that you can imagine moving the pieces around, like what, you know, what's, what song should follow, you know, and, and where do you start? And, and so, um, and I loved doing it. And my editor, Michelle, and I had a lot of fun kind of piecing the stories together in, 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 in different orders. But uh, we didn't want the collection to start with a really, really one of the longer stories. And three of the stories are pretty long. That's why I also think you can't call this short, these short stories. No, they're not. You're right. They're not short stories. I mean, uh, they're much longer than the stories in my first collection. I was interested in writing longer form stories. I mean, it's something that I think it's um, the effect of coming out of having written a novel, too, and then trying to work in a um, on a canvas that's smaller and finding that restrictive in certain ways. So I wanted their, I wanted the stories to breathe. So, um, do you love Deborah Eisenberg? Too? I do. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah no, wonderful Sorry, writer. Yeah. Yeah. She's a, she's a, a model for me. Absolutely. So, um, so, in, uh, so in the, one of the virtues of Endymion is kind of a, you know, it's an enigmatic story and, but it's also short and I think it kind of gets, it can get the reader into the book and then, um, allow the reader to see what the what the pace of the book is going to be like that is to say what and also what the themes of the book are going to be but it's kind of a small taste of it and then and then actually it's kind of like a it's kind of like going up a mountain in a way because the stories get longer the the longest stories are in the middle of the book and then and then they descend a little bit although the final story easy writers itself a pretty long story too yeah and it feels like in the the first story there is it feels like more of a drop-off moment though at the end of it it's like like more of a more of an abruptness that maybe does kind of push you into the second yeah because because if you're interested in having that interconnection really uh, between the stories i wonder if that's a way to do it because then you might be propelled i don't know that's interesting i hadn't thought about that i mean that's a that's a really good um that's a that's a good reading um yeah it it (laughs) It's um. It is a, it is a somewhat abrupt. The, the ending of that story, um, I always knew where that story was going to end. I mean, it kind of started a lot of times in short fiction, at least for me. And I, I've talked to other short story writers who are like this and aren't like this. But for me, at least, if I don't know where the story's going, if I have no idea where the story's going, then it's really hard for me to engineer it as a short story. I mean, it seems this is true even for my longer works of fiction as well. I, I'm the kind of writer who likes to have an idea of where I'm going, even if that final destination point is going to change or evolve in some way. A lot of times my stories begin with me trying to sort of sketch out what the final paragraph is going to look like and try to write toward that. So um, the, I won't ruin the story by saying um, how it ends, but the 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 final paragraph of the story, although the, you know, the commas went in and out and the, some of the words changed, but the basic structure of the conclusion of the story remain the same throughout the drafts. Let's take a short break and then we come back. Today on the program, Douglas Trevor is here with his stories, The Book of Wonders. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. You think that's pretty clever, don't you, boy? 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Douglas Trevor is here, the Book of Wonders. Um, thanks for picking the Radiohead songs, Doug, because... Um, Thank you for letting me play them. <laughs> it would have been great as if we had kind of come back onto the air with us both like trying to hit one of the high notes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're hard songs to sing along to, aren't they, if you turn them down? <laughs> but great in the car. Maybe yes. you and the kids sometimes turn that one up in the car. Yeah, that's and, a good one. Yeah, especially if you're... On some hills and no, yeah. just kidding. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah. A shout out to my my cousin Julie for um, giving me the the album, the Benz. Mm. Um, so that's hmm. a good cousin there. Yeah, she is. Yeah, <laughs> she's a good one. Um, so okay, we haven't talked about the Book of Wonders, the title story. We haven't. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Great. Um, this one, so this one is also has a different type of structure yes. that you're working in. Should, what, yeah. How did, is that something that was key to the, um, like, how did you find that? Or was that something that was there from the beginning? The, the structure was there from somewhat from the beginning, but the, um, it clarified in my mind as I worked on the story. So the, the, the title story, the book of wonders is about, um, a kind of um, intimidating older woman named Annabelle Crouch, who has kept a leather ledger book called the Book of Wonders that she had acquired at an estate sale. It's from the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It's a it's a leather book, and and um, she has she has written in this book systematically throughout her life. And her daughter. Could I ask you one quick question? Yeah. When did you know that Annabelle was going to write in the book? Because I was a bit shocked because it's 1893 yeah. as this artifact because we've been right. talking through the program about the beauty of books like the objects themselves right. the material yeah i i wanted um well i wasn't sure for a while i mean that what ends up happening in the story there's a before the, the, it's a two-section story the first section is called before and the second section is called after i guess not really, really ruining ruining the story to say that uh halfway through the story annabelle crouch has an aneurysm and dies and her adult daughter has always been curious as to what Annabelle's relationship was with this book. So, in fact, T, to answer your question, there were there were a, there were various stages in which the desire of Simone, the daughter, to open up the book. Um, in, in in one early version, she opens it up and there's nothing in there. In another version, she opens it up and there's just a list of antiques that Annabelle had purchased. Um, and then the the final version of the story. Which I which I won't say what happens is um, uh, is is obviously the version I, I stuck with in which there is a disclosure and what I what I was interested in was the way in which um, in this case the the book in question is a journal basically and what it means to learn 
something about a loved one after that person has gone by through reading and, and through by handling one of uh, one of her objects. So it was um, it was a it was a fun story. The 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 earlier version of the story before I whittled it down contained a lot of material about Annabelle's early life, about her kind of her life before she became um, a parent. And you and took that out then. A lot of it came out, and some of it's still in the conversation between the mother and the daughter. Um, and the, the opening of the story, yeah, okay. which takes place over Thanksgiving, um, over Thanksgiving holiday, and um, and then also a, it's it's a it's kind of a funny thing because the title story of um, of this book and the title story of my first book both contain um, sort of distant versions of my own mother that are unrecognizable that my mom always says, why am I figuring in these stories in these ways? And you dedicate the Book of Wonders to Libby. Yeah, to my mom. She's an amazing um, person, but she's also really, really, um, she's she's just an inveterate reader of books. She just absorbs absorbs books. And and my mom also, for a time when I was growing up, um, worked as an antique dealer, which is what Annabelle's profession is. So, but Annabelle's very, very different, um, from my mom, but um, I don't know what it means to to have these books begin in a way with a gesture toward um, uh, toward my mom, kind of rewriting her. But I was really interested in in um, what it what it looks like to have a relationship that needs to be rethought and recalibrated to a degree after someone has passed away, and that's you know that's really what that story is about. The um, Book of Wonders is. Is your sister also in here, I, Jolie? Yeah. So the my first book is all um, orbits around um, her death um, uh, when I was um, uh, when I was in my late twenties, which is um, in that book. Um, my first book is dedicated to her, and those stories are are all about grief to uh, one degree or another. But I don't. Um, I think that this this um, book is much uh, more uh, joyful uh, than that one, and so I I think that. Um, the the sibling relationships that that are explored uh, to varying degrees in this collection are are more connected um, to my sister. But it is true that the that um, the the character Annabelle who dies in the Book of Wonders dies um, a, a, after having an aneurysm. She dies very abruptly, and that's how my sister died. So I think that uh, oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. that's yeah. So that's part of, and that's certainly you know always kind of in the back of um, of of what I'm of what I'm thinking about. But. Um, but I, but I, I, I was intrigued. I still am intrigued by the idea of um, what it means to to try to know other people, and then to fantasize about. I think, which I think we all do, about being able to find a text that explains someone we care about. That is always, you know, the people that we're closest to are also sometimes the people that we're the most mystified by. And there's a fantasy I think that 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 many of us have of of imagining what it's like to uncover something they've written in which they've disclosed some secret that we've suspected that reveals themselves to us. And um, and the Book of Wonders, the story is about that desire to understand someone in that way. And so how did you decide that this was going to be the title of the group of nine? And and is it in nine? That was also your first it was the story. First, yeah, and I, uh, I group yeah. was nine it as was. well. And I was really determined to have ten. I thought that you know it would be like in Spinal Tap that you know you go up to ten and it's about to send us as eleven. You know, if you can go one more than the <laughs> than the expected number, you're making improvements as a writer. Whatever they can say about the books. Well, but, but um, and I had I, I had for a while it was a ten story collection, but one of the stories just didn't fit in the book, and so it went back down to nine. And it 
um, which I don't think is in any way like a perfect number. But um, um, I, uh, t- to me, the um, the title of the story can serve as a container for the rest of the of the stories because it um, it uh, underlines the notion of wonder and it connects it with the notion of books, right? So that's kind of what the what the collection is exploring. And so it seemed like the logical title. I didn't really go back and forth too much about the title for for this one. So Yeah, it just seemed it just seemed right. It seemed like the right title. I, I can't think of any of the other stories that um would would um the titles of other stories that would serve this that would work as well. So And what are you working on now? Um, I'm working Doug. on um a couple of I'm working on two novels. One is set in Denver and it's a sort of ex, it's an exploration of of Denver the city as it changes from the from the 80s when I was a kid to the early 2000s when um, the 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 filter for thinking about the city is a relationship between an estranged uh, father and and his son um, as they kind of get to know each other toward the end of the book the first half of the novel is really kind of exploring in alternating chapters the wanderings, the kind of the, the misdeeds and missteps of the father in the 1980s, and then alternating with the son's kind of discovery of these misdeeds 20 years later. And then I'm, and then I'm, I'm really the only other, uh, the other novel I'm writing is set in Ann Arbor, and I haven't really written very much about Michigan, um, except for one story called Faucets, which is in here, which is, which makes, uh, uh, which um, does not name Ann Arbor explicitly, but a careful reader of the of the story will sense and there's like nickels you know. arcade I yeah feel like yeah it's like the, it's a location yeah Star- that's right starbucks on and, state street yeah well and, the, and the, you're right because the other the other really rich ann arbor story in the collection is that it well that song, starts in ann arbor the, the detroit um, or, or no, detroit. yeah the yes, detroit frankfurt school discussion group yeah. which is um starts in detroit and i'm sorry starts in ann arbor and then heads to detroit and then comes back to ann arbor so there are two <laughs> there are two ann arbor stories but i'm working on a novel that is um that's about a family that's, I guess I could say, going through a crisis that, is, that lives in Ann Arbor. So and it, two at one time. Well, one is in third person and one is in first, so it seems very easy to go back and forth. So I'm sort of trying to figure out which one I'm going to s- stick with when the summer comes in 2018 when I have more time to write, and then I'll just go to that one. But I can't decide yet, so I'm trying to do both of them. Yeah, why? Why yeah. not? Why, just, why choose? Yeah. And, and then maybe the next collection of, or the next group of stories probably nine, will be called <laughs> the, re- the Reinvention of Sadness. Wow, that would be great, right? Don't you think? Yeah, that would be really cool. Well, I think I'll do it. We'll come back and talk anytime, Doug, Thank please. you so much, T. I had so much fun. Um, today on the program, um, I've been talking with Douglas Trevor, his book of stories, The Book of Wonders. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Steph for engineering. Many thanks to Doug Trevor for being here today. And um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. Plastic watering can for a fake Chinese rubber plant and a fake plastic girl that you bought from her. 